This is Polly, and I am now going to give you some dates for Chicago Dialogue Therapy Training. It's training for therapists who want to learn the dialogue therapy method, which is the method that incorporates real dialogue plus a number of other features of evaluation and communication. It's for anyone interested in learning couples therapy and especially interested in learning dialogue therapy. Uh, and the first training in Chicago is November 7th through 10th, 2019. The second training is January 30th through February 2nd, 2020, April 2nd through the 5th, 2020, and May 14th through the 17th, 2020. These are all extended weekends, and together these trainings result in about 85 hours of continuing education credit for mental health professionals. You can check on my website to see where the training will take place in Chicago. If you live close to Chicago or you want to make the commute, it's going to be actually a really lively training. And we've taken some time to set it up. And I know there are a lot of people interested in the Chicago area. But I would encourage anybody who's close by and interested in completing the training, getting certified in dialogue therapy, to check the website about the training in Chicago. Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. In today's podcast, we're going to begin to talk about the real dialogue as live events. In preparing to bring the podcast live on stage, today Polly's going to be interviewing Sarah Brody, a dialogue therapist from Toronto, who will co-host Real Dialogue for Opposing Sides with Polly in these live events. These are structured conversations between those with opposing views or those who have been hurt by each other. These events will bring together thoughtful experts who disagree about such diverse topics as climate change, the nature of gender, the safety of psychiatric drugs, what happens after we die, the nature of consciousness, free will, and many other topics whose opposing views stir our emotions and our imaginations. Each guest will first be interviewed as an individual. Before the live event, each guest will listen to the interview of the other on the opposite side. On stage, the co-host will structure and guide the questions and dialogue so that the guest must follow the rules of real dialogue. There will be time for questions and answers with the audience. In this podcast, Polly will be interviewing Sarah, and she'll be talking about the rules, as well as the power of speaking for yourself, recognizing your own subjective limitations and bias as you speak, and listening mindfully, and recognizing another subjectivity. Welcome, Polly, and welcome, Sarah. It's wonderful to have you with us. Oh, it's nice to be okay, here. Okay, so. So, hi, Sarah. Hi. You're our first outside guest on this podcast. It's only been <laughs> Eleanor and I until now, so you're our first guest, so welcome. And you're coming on because you and I will be working together with live audiences, or in a live audience setup, with two experts who oppose each other on stage structuring their conversation. So they have to follow the rules of dialogue and we'll be putting in place all of the different steps and talking to the audience in advance about what the rules are, hoping to come out of those events with actually something that no one will have ever heard before, 
which is the possibility of those two people actually hearing each other, learning from each other, and being interested in what the other person says. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know there are many, many podcasts, experts, communicators who want to bring these opposing sides together, but they don't use the method. Mm -hmm. And we'll be using a method, and it will be something new for audiences, but I think also for our guests. And it's that method, real dialogue, that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about dialogue therapy a little bit too, because dialogue therapy is the original practice in which real dialogue was kind of invented, let's say, or developed. Mm -hmm. And um, I wondered if you could tell us, first of all, a little bit about your practice and what you do uh, as a therapist, and then also why you got interested in dialogue therapy and real dialogue and what you do with it. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd love to explain. So I am a psychotherapist in Toronto area, and I have pretty general practice. I work with all different ages, but I do see at least, well, more than half my practice is children. So as you know, I've, I've followed your work for quite some time, and I find that you're, you're naming trends that as I read and, and think about the theory that you've put together, I use it in my everyday practice. And dialogue has clicked right into place because when you talk about equals and I think about children, they're not in the equal position. Right. And yet when parents are coming with descriptions and worries about their child, they don't see that. They've, with, I think, good intentions, tried to give their child an equality in the family that is actually confusing yes. to the child. Right. And so the other thing is that sometimes when children come forth with emotional and behavioral, you know, real complexity and suffering, it can constellate the family so that the parents are really focused on the child all the time and their own couple is, is mm -hmm. neglected. Mm -hmm. So when I think about what we've learned in dialogue of equality, about not instigating rage and humiliation mm -hmm. about being interested mm -hmm. and uh, thinking about projection. Mm -hmm. That is all so salient for understanding what the meaning of a child's symptom, the psychological symptom mm -hmm. is in the mm -hmm. family. So when I talk about using real dialogue, I'm oftentimes introducing this to parents as a way to they're both equally invested as mother and father, mm -hmm. but sometimes have polarized mm -hmm. in, in their understanding of the child. And so I'm teaching them dialogue technique so that they can spot their projection, sometimes on the other, sometimes on the child, mm -hmm. and to learn from that. And, and that's, that's where I, I, I think of this, this technique being a gateway before... I have the child come into my consulting room, mm -hmm. that these techniques be followed because sometimes I think it would defer the need of the of child, the child coming, coming at all. Yeah. 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 Well, you've introduced a number of topics there, but let's, let's stay for a moment mm -hmm. with the idea of the parents communicating with each other that when parents get locked into repetitive conflict, what we've called projective identification on the podcast, where people actually kind of create an internal theater and they're directing the other person into the worst parts so that they feel that they're with an enemy, yeah. and especially in regard to a child. Often it'll be what the one parent feels the other parent is doing wrong or, or the parent thinks the other one maybe has symptoms that the child is inheriting in some way or practicing in some way, mm -hmm. that that repetitive conflict with the parents then leads to their inability to parent together. Mm -hmm. They can't solve their parenting differences. Not that parents should parent in the same way, but they should be able to respect their differences. That's just the key, is mm -hmm. to be able to see and respect differences. So if they can't do that, then many times it's easier to project all of the anxiety into the child, and then you begin to try to fix your child, change your child according to some idea you have about how the child should be. Whereas if the parents can actually clear up their repetitive conflict, be able to deal with each other as friends, and also solve their problems together, 
often the child is just fine. I mean, the child then is neither right. the scapegoat for their conflict, nor is the child the subject of their anxiety. Mm. You know, so I think that's what you're saying that many times yeah. it's not the child, even though the child is coming in as well, the problem. You know, if I just put it into development of how we come forward so egocentric and then we move into understanding the yes. twosome. Yes. And then we understand as we're coming into being like kind of preschool age, mm -hmm. the threesome. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that I talk to parents about where their child is stuck or the kinds of defenses that the child is, is using, uh, it's often around that time where they, they need to be looking at their parents communicating well yes. in order to be able to move to the next level. That's right. Right. And so it's actually a necessary element for a child to learn to self-regulate because, of course, as you know, the child tries to intercede and break the marital bond because right. they're envious of that and they want right. to go back to the simpler world of having yes. their, each of their parents gazing lovingly down towards them at all right. times. And so this idea that the parents have something going on that they're mm -hmm. not at the center of right. is really kind of it's it's scary for yeah, a child yeah. so they try to hack at it mm -hmm. and if if it's if it's a delicate yeah. relationship then that lands back on the child too and and the, that's actually oftentimes the age mm -hmm. of child that i'm meeting is is a child who's you know sort of like five or yeah around five six, to seven uh -huh. where a, a child is the whole family and it's you know, I don't really see, there's not a, a stuck point that is across the board. Right. There's The child is stuck, unable to move past and into, like, past three-person psychology. Right. And be able to kind right. of get into the more complex stuff right. of group psychology where they can put their ego aside themselves. Right. Develop their own sense of curiosity and interest and get much further along towards the kind of person, the kind of sense of self that you need in order to be an equal. Yes, yes. Later, way later yes. on down the line. Right, right. Yeah. And and what you said, I mean, again, reminds me, when I wrote The Self-Esteem Trap, mm -hmm. I was very clear that, that parents were too involved in parenting, that they didn't have a life of their own. And a lot of times they didn't have a relationship to the partner. Their emotional intimacy was with the child. Mm -hmm. And that that created then this feeling that the child was an equal where the child is not an equal. Right. And the child then had no reason to grow up because they've already got somebody under their control. It. And it seems like paradise, like why leave, mm -hmm. you know? But actually that doesn't result in anything like an actual adult when you reach the age of 21 to 25. If that child is bound up with, you know, being sort of the star of the show with one parent or with each parent separately, right. uh, it ends up being a problem for the child, tremendous problem for the parent's relationship to each other, mm -hmm. and then problems for society because the child can't be that special, you know, once the child gets out. Right. And so if I'm meeting a child like around that, you know, early grades, with that understanding, the recommendation that really sticks with parents is that you will do your child a favor by modeling for them that adulthood is where it's at. Yes. Yes. That you should, you should, they right. should get regular doses of you having more fun than they are. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So that there's some place to go after childhood. Mm -hmm. That childhood isn't the end all and be all mm -hmm. of life, which mm -hmm. I think for a while it was looking that way for people. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, again, where the real dialogue component comes in is in working with the parents to adopt this model of real dialogue between each other, recognizing that they are the equals. They are the pair that really needs to be solidified. They need to work out solutions that are lasting mm -hmm. between them, That's right. not solutions that are lasting between the, the child and them, which is usually That's right. you know, all that sort of constant power mongering, power negotiation that goes on these days with parents and children. Right, and I think that dialogue in families can be discreetly happening behind closed doors, but the impact of the couple understanding one another mm -hmm. and their parenting relationship, as well as their marriage, will come right back out into relief, as, as a relief into the family when they've come to an understanding, when they've used dialogue to come to an understanding of what to do mm -hmm. about a problem. Right. 
then that doesn't even have to be a it doesn't even have to be witnessed in order for a child to benefit from having parents that are relating as equals right because it really clarifies the hierarchy of where the child is in the family too that's right that's right and what the child then has as a future as well as puts the two sides of the child together i sometimes explain to parents if you demean you know one of the parents if one person demeans the other and makes a kind of alliance against that that parent with the child that actually leaves out one side of that child's mind one side of that child's mind has to be then devalued Mm -hmm. then i see that person in adulthood and they have this sort of thing like i had this great father and this terrible mother Mm -hmm. or this great mother and this terrible father Mm -hmm. and they don't like that Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel right it doesn't feel like a solid basis for having a personality if you have to have one side that's always in you know the the sort of problematic view Mm -hmm. so again there are many ways that this can help with parenting that it can help with couple relationship and i know you do some dialogue therapy as well which Mm -hmm. is the the time limited approach to couples therapy that actually rests a lot on dialogue but also differentiation that Mm -hmm. the two people can actually each recognize that each one of them is valid yeah and that each one of them has needs and desires that are different from the other, and they can be interested in each other's needs and desires. So, And dialogue therapy is something that I think you use in your relationships, some uh, in your therapeutic relationships with your some of your parents, and yep. sometimes with couples. Anytime I'm emotionally activated, I'm snapping You're using it there, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, of course, you are too, yeah. yes. And That's, how wonderful to be able yeah. to start with children. I mean, so many of the adults in the world today are still children. Yes, I know. But what occurs to me too, something that Polly's mentioned again and again in our, in our, in our podcast, is that she talks about new ideas and meaning are not obvious, but always have to be discovered through authentic contact with others. And so bringing that back to the parent-child is a um, just so valuable, mm-hmm. Sarah, really. So we're going to talk a little bit now about real dialogue as a method and a skill. So sometimes it's hard to separate because it's the same with psychoanalysis and mindfulness. They're, they're methods, but they're also skills. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes we talk about the method of how you learn to do them, and then sometimes we talk about the skill you acquire Yes. If you've learned to do them. And so sometimes it's a little hard to separate those, to sort those out. Mm. So um, real dialogue is a method, and it's a method that relies on three main components. And I'm just going to sketch those out and say that we will be using these with the audience in a, in a live setting. Uh, we will be asking people to speak this way when they ask questions or when they interact with us or with the uh, guests that are on stage. And then we will also set this as rules of conduct for our guests. And the guests will, of course, know this in advance. When we bring them on stage, we will have already interviewed each one for a podcast and each person will have listened to the other person's interview. And so they will have some acquaintance with the other person although, you know, not a deep acquaintance, but it's a little like in dialogue therapy when each partner has to listen to the other partner's interview. So that's the act of listening, yes? Well, it's actually, you you start to form, when you hear somebody else interview your partner, usually you're entangled with your partner emotionally, and you don't have a very clear view of who that person is. Mm -hmm. But when you hear someone else interview that person at length and in depth, Mm-hmm. you actually start to see the person as somebody who's worth listening to. And uh, I think that, that that's what will happen with our guests also. In the live, that will be well, they will have, yeah. well, they have, well, they will have listened in advance to each one of them being interviewed for the podcast. And so, you know, when person A walks in, let's just say that, let's take the case of you know, what happens after we die. Because everybody has that question, what happens after we die? So if one of our guests has done research on, let's call them near-death experiences, some people call them death experiences, not near-death, where people have been dead for a period of time and they've collected data and they have a strong view, this is what happens right after death. And the other person in this, in this dyad 
uh, is a neuroscientist who says that's just a brain hip, hiccup. That's just something that, that's like a hallucinogenic event that happens when you're dying as a result of chemicals in your brain. It's not real at all. It has nothing to do with reality. So we would interview each one of those people beforehand, being really interested in their point of view, going into it, and play it on the podcast so our listeners could hear each side of the opposition. Mm -hmm. And then when they come on stage together, they will have already heard the other person interviewed with respect. Right, right. So there will already be that interest in the other person's mm -hmm. point of view. And then we will ask them to follow these basic rules for dialogue. And we will hope that during their interaction, they will learn some of the skill because you and I will be there to facilitate. Mm -hmm. We will also act as a reflecting team mm -hmm. and we will use the skill of unblocking. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we'll switch chairs and do a short interview with one person or the other mm -hmm. and then talk to each other about where we find the obstacles in the two people being able to be in contact or communicate. Mm -hmm. So it's like we'll be teaching some of the method, we'll be teaching the skills, we'll hope that our guests learn a bit of the method, and then they pick up some skills. The metaphor that I always use in reflecting on dialogue with the two, the co-therapists, or in this case, the co-what, dialogists? Co-facilitators. Co-facilitators co is what I think we'll um, call us. <laughs> I always see a bicycle with training wheels. Mm, yeah. And yeah. so the, the two wheels of that the that, never, that never quite meet are the, yeah. the, the main bicycle wheels. And we're on the side uh, making sure that there's stability. Yeah, yeah. And then That's nice. uh, when, when we come off, off they go. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so we're kind of mm -hmm. containing them in the event. Mm -hmm. And then we're opening up a possibility of them having this emotional space mm -hmm. in which they can relate and see each other as individuals and perhaps find a common ground. I mean, my, my very deep feeling about humans is that we have a lot of common ground, mm -hmm. and, but we almost never get there if we're in particularly a difference that causes emotional threat where we start feeling emotionally threatened, yes, yes. then we just defend ourselves. Yes. And we just listen to what's going on in our own mind, what we want to say. We don't open our ears and really listen yeah. to the other person. It's, it's, a, it's addictive to project, you know? It's oh, yeah. like to put, oh, well to put, put. <laughs> what we have disavowed about ourselves right. onto someone else. And this uh, technique, this method, has at, I've at least gotten to the place where when I hear myself um, internally speaking words of hate, mm -hmm. I immediately take what it is that I find hateable at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I ask myself if that's an aspect of myself that I'm having a difficult time owning. Mm. And it immediately shifts mm -hmm. that how I think towards this, what I thought was a hateable other. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and yes. I all of a sudden feel compassionate <laughs> yes. that this person is at the very worst like me <laughs> yeah, yeah and maybe not at all and maybe suffering yeah, yeah. you know in that moment in the mm -hmm. same way you're suffering mm -hmm. and so there's that common ground in mm -hmm. your suffering together mm -hmm. and i think for the events that we're going to be putting on stage both people will care tremendously about the topic mm -hmm. you know neither person will be neutral Mm -hmm. about it. They both care a great deal. And they both probably will have put a lot of effort and work mm -hmm. into their view of it. Yeah. And then we're wanting them to be able to talk to somebody who has a different view. I really have no doubt that we'll be able to do a really good job of this in a way that hasn't been seen before, because I know the method. And I know what's involved, and I know you, and I know you'll work well with me, and I know that we will know how to stop them and actually have them take that pause in order to take a step back to see if they can hear what the other person says. You know, I listened to Sheila Heen, who's in the negotiation project at Harvard. I listened to her in a podcast with, I think she was with Shane Parrish. And she was talking about the negotiation project at Harvard, and he was trying to ask her kind of, kind of high-level questions about decision-making and business and how people negotiate their differences and how they get stuck and so on. And he said, so really, if you had to summarize and say in really short phrase, 
what is the secret sauce? Like how, yeah. how are people getting to a yes? How can you negotiate? And she said, well, I'm a little afraid to say it because it sounds so boring. She said, it's all listening. People cannot listen when they are rehearsing to themselves what they're going to say and when they're emotionally activated. Mm -hmm. And so the listening part is the part where we have so little skills. And she said, it sounds so boring because people go into, well, it's just paraphrasing, whatever. It is not. It no, you is have not. to put yourself in the shoes of the other. You do. You do. And and that's such a hard act to do if you're feeling like you're, I don't know, even hanging by a string and being who you are. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. And, and so then um, it, it requires a, a real uh, groundedness, a feeling of being safe and so on. And, and I mean... Being on stage isn't always an easy place to feel that way. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but I like right. I like this concept so much of, of choosing people who have really d developed one side of a debate and mm -hmm. having them meet with someone who's done the contrary mm -hmm. and everybody working to enlarge the scope of listening to both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is, a uh, I think, of whether there will be listeners to this podcast that would be in that audience, but certainly people who are interested in the topic at hand. Yes. But then all of those people getting to have a really nice, juicy taste of what dialogue is. Yes, yes. Because that's just, that's the take home. That's what they'll see yeah. actually functioning that makes this conversation different from something they'd see on CNN, mm -hmm. something they'd even see on Krista Tippett. Because no matter how skilled you are as an interviewer, when you get two people that are in opposition to each other, unless you know how to structure the conversation this way and you're willing to do it, what you generally hear will be the two people defending themselves. That's right. They won't find a common ground. They won't find that mutual discovery of actually listening and finding out if maybe they overlap in some way that's really useful that then would come up with an idea that nobody has ever had before. I mean, I think it comes, the idea of being able to win a debate, it, that's part of the uh, what what feeds the polarity. Whereas mm -hmm. in this case, the win is learning. Yes. Is, yes. is the learning yes. of the other the other perspective. And for for the audience too, to, to because people are going to be coming in with their own polarities that's and their right. own uh, that's sense right. of that. So enlarging that so that you can see how, like in your last podcast, of how a two opposing sides are interconnected, of right. how, uh, how peace and, right. and conflict right. are are two sides of the same coin. That's right. This right. too will be, instead of this idea of like one person winning, yeah. uh, people will be leaving with, um, I, th I, I, I feel like complexity, like a, a, yes. enrichment. Yes, yes, exactly. Because actually the idea of a debate even is actually that the two sides are not learning from each other. Mm -hmm. They're 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 like conquering. One mm -hmm. side's going to conquer the other, mm -hmm. instead of bringing together the two sort of wings. I mean, in Buddhism, sometimes you know they're called like the wings of compassion and wisdom. That you need both of them. You can't just develop one. Mm -hmm. And so to you know, on this conversation, let's say this one that we talked about with death, near-death experiences or death experiences, mm -hmm. putting the two sides together that have never talked to each other before, we may find out something that no one has ever thought before mm -hmm. because those two sides have never been together before. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, for me, is this tremendously compelling thing <gasps> about doing you know, real dialogue on stage. And we're calling it real dialogue for opposite sides right now. I'm not sure how we will actually title the podcast when we develop this component, but we're just now in the midst of trying to get the setup for it and also imagine how our podcast will go on. Once mm -hmm. we start bringing these, these guests on, then we will bring on guests to the podcast on the opposite sides of these opposite sides. And then that might spawn other events where people get together and use real dialogue on these subjects that will be on stage. But so the, the star of the event really is real dialogue. Mm -hmm. But the, the reason people are coming is to learn about whatever the, the topic is so they can hear the two sides being talked about in a respectful way, creating emotional space. So 
if I can just say in summary, like the you've been practicing dialogue for so long, the curiosity, the the the, the maturity of the curiosity that you come on this this mm. future stage with, <laughs> of 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 knowing that um, with application of of these of these skills there can be a learning of something that has been yet un- that is before that unknown unknown yes is completely beautiful unknown. yeah and yeah. the audience will have yeah. a direct experience of that which is you know is a, is a profound gift right it's not you know something they could get in the same way by reading an article or even listening to the podcast i mean they'll be in direct experience with it and also because the vulnerability of each of the the opposing um uh, personalities will be really uh, uh, visible, right? Well, I mean, they they're going to be working with be the, because they have to work with their exactly, own subjective experience exactly. in order I mean, to keep they the dialogue can't, going. They can't. I mean, it's not going to work if they're going to suppress all of that. I mean, yeah, it's very. It's a very exciting way. Again, a profound teaching. So I'm going to talk for a minute, and then we'll about the the skills of real dialogue. What the skills are that we we will be conveying in these live events where people can actually see them and then what we do when we're teaching real dialogue in any kind of environment whether it's a therapeutic environment or another kind of environment that um, the two kind of biggest skills in that, that are takeaways uh, is this ability to keep emotional threats to a minimum mm-hmm. in order to keep it so let me say this that we've talked about this many times on the podcast but because when you're threatened emotionally, you're going to react with active or passive aggression or defending yourself against what you imagine to be active or passive aggression, it becomes a cycle that usually goes towards humiliation and rage, right. you know, that each person feels humiliated and then they're trying to handle their rage mm-hmm. because emotional threat activates the limbic system and particularly the amygdala which doesn't have, it's, it's like a sort of, I always think of it as like the Titans in Greek mythology. They don't have a number of channels. They're just off or on. You know, either they're tearing the world apart or they're keeping everything peaceful. There's nothing in between, whereas the Olympian gods have all of these capacities between the extremes. And so we're going to try to keep the Titans contained you know no emotional extremes and what happens what you have to do to do that is you have to follow the rules of dialogue so the first rule and we've talked about this in the podcast on real dialogue is the rule of speaking for yourself now i'm going to talk about that and then i'm going to ask you to talk about paraphrasing Mm -hmm. as a mindfulness skill and also i would say it's so speaking for yourself and paraphrasing sound on the surface like they're simple. But when you're emotionally threatened, they are about the most difficult thing you can ever do. So speaking for yourself requires you to, it's more than just making I statements. It's actually putting yourself in a frame of mind where you realize that you are inside of a subjective world, what I call your little snow globe. And inside of that snow globe, things sound a certain way, they look a certain way, they feel a certain way that is not consensual. That is, the rest of the world is not in that experience, but you don't know that. So within your snow globe, when you speak, you say, here's the way I see it, or this is my impression, or here's the way I remember our conversation, or these were the studies I've done, and these are the outcomes of those studies. You don't say, here is the objective truth. Here are the facts of the matter. This is what we said last Thursday. I remember it exactly. You don't say anything that implies that you have an objective view Mm -hmm. of anything. Mm -hmm. And that keeps emotional threat at a minimum. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're wishy-washy. It doesn't mean you're, like somebody said to me, what is this, like, um, what do they call it? Like beyond truth or something? Not at all. No. It just means you're modest. You're modest. You say, okay, here's the way it looks to me. 
This is the way I've learned it. This is the way I understand it. This is what impresses me. This is my opinion, but not this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. So speaking for yourself, yourself is complex because you're in a constant complex experience. You're always talking to yourself. There are always images going on in your own mind. So when you're speaking to somebody else, you have a tendency to want to cast what you're saying as particularly if you're threatened, mm -hmm. as though it's God's truth. You know, this is it. This is the way it is. So that first step of formulating a subjective statement takes skill. And you and I will be working with our guests so that they formulate that first statement, here's the way I see it. Mm -hmm. Here's the way I've experienced it in a way that has the modesty of speaking for yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's the very first step in real dialogue. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not just using I statements. Mm -hmm. So the second step then, the other person has to demonstrate having listened yeah. before they can respond. Yeah, and, and also the speaker has to, what you've called chunk. In yes. Like it just, so I think of it and I describe it to parents as like, imagine that you're talking on walkie talkies mm. because you just want to give enough so that the other person can confirm receipt. Mm -hmm. And so the, the paraphrasal is the, the dialogue, the real dialogue way of confirming receipt of message. And that's where so much interesting stuff happens, as you know, because people don't get it. Right. <laughs> Well, they haven't listened yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then they, they paraphrase back and, and you, you can see like a valley between the two mountains. <laughs> right. And and that's humbling. Like if, yeah. if and especially when you have those training wheels of the of the facilitators on side to confirm, you know, to go back a half a second to mm -hmm. what that statement was that mm -hmm. was being said. And sometimes to scaffold mm -hmm. that paraphrasal mm -hmm. in helping I mean of course on the sidelines it's you can listen deeply well because you're not because in that relationship in yes, and so yes. so there we are yeah, on the yeah. sideline yes, and yes. able to gently rephrase sometimes it's by hearing it through someone else's mouth that you're yeah. able to oh, better yes, listen yes. and so then again it goes to paraphrasal and all the good feeling that comes from being heard mm -hmm. and from having your own words given back to you through someone else's perception like with an accord and with the integrity that you intended them and on the way there there's a lot of tweaking right yes a lot and, and in that yes. tweaking is you you really get a feel for the dynamic of 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 the speakers yeah <laughs> of of yeah. how that goes because sometimes it'll bounce back I don't know, half a dozen times. Oh, yes. yes. Back and forth. That, that back they don't forth. hear. They don't, yeah. they haven't, no, you haven't yeah. got it yet. You yeah. haven't got it yet. And when it's they amazing. get it, it's yeah. for both people, it's mm. a relief yes. and a release. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I always love it also that the speaker feels relieved. Yes. When the other person says, you got it now, you got yeah. it. And the speaker goes like, oh. And then I, and then we will often say, uh, you know, in that, in that cycle between like a chunk and a paraphrasal. Mm -hmm. And then however many back and forths need to get there, at the end, there's that cherry on top, which is, do you have anything more to add? Do you have anything more to add? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> which yes. we don't always get right. to, depending right. on how many back and forths right. there were. But, right. you know, when you get to that, that is one communication fully received. That's right. And it is this act of, of real generosity of spirit to say anything else. Yeah. Yeah, right, because yeah. it's been such a struggle to yeah. get to that first place. Yeah. And I think what, you know, and then, of course, then, then that, that person can then respond mm -hmm. to the statement. And that's a wonderful demonstration of from war to wisdom. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's the very thing that when we were talking about, you know, the, the, the concepts and structures and the possibility and stuff, but that actual kind of practice, yes. that, that does give you a sense of, in a sense, what peace could be. Yeah, it, it's, yes, it's a step-by-step. Yeah. Step. Yeah. Baby step-by-step. Step. Yes. That's yes. wonderful. Yeah. Yes. That yes. gives me yeah. a lot of um, confidence. And Yeah, it does. When you, when yeah. it's happening, you ha you start to feel the hope. Exactly. Then you start to feel exactly. the hope for humanity in general because these two people, in the, the person who's, when, when you're in emotional conflict or when there's a feeling of threat, the person who has to do the paraphrasing, particularly the very first person, to paraphrase, mm -hmm. usually that person is unfamiliar with how difficult it is. And so sometimes they draw a blank altogether. At first. I mean, I found people very often just that when I say, okay, now can you paraphrase? And they go, wait, 
I don't know what she said. Exactly. Because they blocked so exactly. much exactly. and they didn't know they were blocking. Exactly. They, because they're, usually they're listening to themselves say mm-hmm. what they want to say so exactly. they haven't heard any of it. And so then once they're so used to blocking out that, or they're they're blocking out the other person. But I think what a discovery with (laughs) these guests. I'm hoping they won't be used to each other Mm -hmm. by the time we get them on stage. The facilitator helping with the paraphrase. The reason that we can do the paraphrase generally pretty accurately is that we're not emotionally invested in that relationship we're not entangled or threatened to that moment so we're in a very different position than the other person who's hearing it but to know that your ears are not open most of the time is a shock to people when you're threatened you know that we're it's there's about 95 percent of our perception is happening in an automatic way and we're unconscious of it we're only about five percent conscious and so we get to check that out in paraphrasing when we're in conflict and we're using these skills of real dialogue. So after the paraphrasing is over, then it happens in the other direction. The person has to speak for themselves. That person who was doing the listening now responds, speaking for the self again through that same framework, retaining subjectivity, yeah. no objectivity, no you statements, no we statements. Just this is the way I see it. This is the way I'm understanding it. And back and forth until you're actually able to have some open exchange where there's this space created. Mm -hmm. Now, in an ideal dialogue, what happens is that people recognize that they have to police themselves in order to create a space in which they can see and hear each other. And then, you know, so they begin to do that. They begin to actually, instead of saying what their first sort of response is, they check and see what's going on. Did I hear something that actually was the other person speaking? Or was I just listening to myself, telling myself what I was going to say? What a profound model. Can you think of it? It really, it brings me to, well, I think about meditation and how, um, you know, you can become aware that you haven't been paying attention to your breath, if that's what you breathing. (laughs) But in this case, especially when you add the emotional activation into the mix, yeah. it, you know, language takes up the full bandwidth of conscious attention when you're, when you do listen. Right. Right. And so if there's emotional activation, we don't have that full bandwidth of conscious attention always at, at the ready. We have to, you know, it's, it seems to me that deep listening is much like a meditation. It's entirely like, because, yes. because you have in order to listen you have to settle in. Yes. And so by doing that action, you soothe your own activated emotions. You become open to not just in the case of meditation, the breath, but this whole other subjectivity. Yes, exactly. And so, so you're you're able to hear out or to it. see out yeah. instead of actually becoming preoccupied with mm-hmm. yourself means that mm-hmm. you're preoccupied with what you're saying in your mm-hmm. own mind or the images that are coming to you mm-hmm. become the force of your experience mm-hmm. instead of actually hearing it and seeing it on the outside. And so working with that is very much like a meditation exercise. It's where is your concentration? Do you have equanimity enough that you can drop what's going on in your own mind so you can listen to the other person right. or within your own mental space, let's call it. And so the second big skill that you get from real dialogue is that you come to know your own childish modes you see your own knee-jerk emotional ways of acting and feeling and sounding like a child or a disempowered victim. Mm-hmm. And you, we all have these. And then you come to know your blind spots. You sort of know what triggers you and that there are certain things that trigger you. I know when Eleanor and I were talking about, you know, appearance is power. And I was saying, when I go down, the, when I walk down the street, I hear my mind making comments on people's outfits. And it's like my mind is interested in how other people are dressed or what their hairstyle is like, what it all matches or whatever. And that's going on. And I could go with that if I wanted to, you know, it's kind of like going out on outside of my own immediate awareness Mm -hmm. because I'm just walking down the street, Mm -hmm. but there's this commentary and that's a kind of commentary that I fall for a great deal. I have a kind of critical commentary about aesthetics and it, it goes on 
And sometimes it's very helpful because I can arrange things aesthetically, but sometimes it's a complete distraction. But that's kind of a small part of what I've learned about myself. And so if I pay attention to that, if I'm walking down the street, I'm actually not walking down the street anymore. I don't have any feeling of my feet. I don't have any feeling of the wind passing me. I'm just commenting on people's appearance. And that's what my experience is. And so again, you come to know what your childish sort of knee-jerk reactions are. And I think that Real Dialogue for Opposite Sides will be a two-hour event in which there's an introduction to Real Dialogue, then there's an hour of dialogue, then there's a Q&A with the audience, and then the finishing of the dialogue with the two people. Even in that two-hour period, I think everybody in the audience will come to see how important it is when the two people actually can hear each other, can actually acknowledge that they, they've been heard, mm -hmm. and then perhaps move on in their responses with curiosity so they could discover something new. Because I would say nine times out of 10, when people do real dialogue, they discover something new. And I'll, I'll sum it up too by saying that if the audience are participating in practicing the same thing as yes. the people who are speaking. Yes, and so there's, right. a, a, there's a real sort of complicity and, and togetherness of, of project in, in, this, in the live dialogues. Yes, yes. So now I'm going to shift gears and appeal to our audience about these live onstage events. So, you know, Eleanor and I have been carrying this podcast on our own. I fund it. Uh, it's funded through my work. It's actually been developing towards bringing these events on stage and shifting gears in the podcast so that we can bring people on who are on opposing sides of issues that then will become part of a, a live onstage event. In order to do that, we need funding. We are not a nonprofit, but we are looking to develop at least one onstage event that will allow us to shift gears in what we're doing and potentially then develop as a nonprofit. We don't know yet. We don't know sort of what our next step will be, whether we're going to try to sustain ourselves as a podcast through having our listeners support us through membership or whether we would advertise some or whether we would look for some kind of donor backup. We don't know. But at this point, we are looking for any suggestions you might make about finding donors, matching us up with donors, or anybody who wants to donate to help us bring this live, onstage, real dialogue event. Also, if you were helping us, we would have you donate to our corporation, which is the Institute for Dialogue Therapy, and those funds would be set aside simply for this live event. We also want to ask our listeners what kinds of topics would be relevant to them. We mentioned a list in the introduction to this podcast, and we will be gathering topics uh, we're quite certain that we will be able to organize first onstage event in the near future. Uh, so where you would correspond with us about your ideas for donors, or if you want to donate some money yourself, is on an email. EnemiesWarToWisdom at gmail.com is the email address. If you have ideas for us to seek funding, we have not put together a crowdsourced funding ask, and we probably won't. We'd like to actually raise money through our listening audience if possible. We are also approaching donors. And so we have done some homework on donors in our area. But if you have ideas or you are a potential donor, we'd love to hear from you. We would be very, very happy at this point to make this transition in the podcast so we can bring it to a bigger audience. And then there will be a video of each one of these events, which we will make uh, available on, on YouTube. YouTube. Yes. And uh, we will be using those videos to illustrate to the general public how to use the skills of real dialogue. But also those videos will contain important discoveries yes. from opposite yes. sides. Yeah. So it's, it's all around a great yeah. thing. So, it's very exciting. Yes, it's very it is. exciting. 
Thank so you. Thanks, Sarah, for being with us. Oh, pleasure. And thanks, Eleanor. So soon I will be teaching at the Rowe Conference Center. It's in Rowe, Massachusetts. And I will be offering two different programs. One is a couples retreat program, which is on the weekend of October 4th and 5th, 2019. And that's for anybody who wants to participate. You can check on the Roe website, R-O-W-E. And then I will be presenting as well a foundational training in dialogue therapy that begins on Monday, October 6th and goes to October 11th. That first segment is a five-day program. It's part one of a two-part certificate training in dialogue therapy. And this training program is for any therapist who wants to enhance skills for couples therapy or wants to learn to do dialogue therapy, or for non-therapists who want to learn this training in order to become a real dialogue specialist. And we talked about real dialogue on several of the podcasts. The first week of the training is October 6th through 11th, 2019. And then the second week is March 6th through 11th, 2020. March 6th through 11th, 2020. And so this model of therapy based on real dialogue, and it's a structured, time-limited form of couples therapy that draws on psychoanalysis, mindfulness, and psychodrama. It can be applied to couples in conflict and couples who are having especially difficulties with their intimacy, as well as to other dyadic relationships where there's difficulties with repetitive conflicts. Uh, In the training, you'll be learning in lots of different ways through mindfulness practices, dyadic exercises, videos, lecture, intensive sessions, and you will learn about lots of different things, including the nature of personal love, challenges of equality, reciprocity, and mutuality, and the enemy factors in personal love. So there's lots more to the training, but if again, if you check on my website, www.youngeisendrath.com, or if you check on the Row website, You will get the details for the training program October 6th through 11th, 2019, and then March 6th through 11th, 2020 for the full certification. And the uh, couples retreat precedes the weekend before that October 6th date. So I hope to see you there. I always look forward to the training. We learn a lot together, and it's also a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening, and to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.